Well, we're in a part 20 of our uh, Connection with the Church series in Ephesians, and so we're going to walk into another little mini-series talking about parenting and kind of the pieces that come into that. And so this message is really about learning the lines between blessing and provoking and talking a little bit about that. And you're gonna get kind of three pieces in this message. You're gonna have a little bit that's gonna be kind of the practical walking through the text. Then there's gonna be a bit that's gonna be kind of me nerding out on some research that's gonna be valuable, but it is me nerding out on research. So I'm just qualifying that in the beginning. And then number three, we'll walk back into some practical pieces of parenting. So as we're walking into the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians has been moving us into this reality that we will never be whole and we will never be complete. We will not experience that true shalom unless we orient every corner of our lives around Jesus, unless we define every corner of our lives by Jesus. And so it's really making us ask the question, is Jesus just present in our life or is he leading our life? Is Jesus something that's prominent and important or are there other areas that we still hold on to with greater value and Jesus is just kind of one small piece? And so these are the types of questions that Paul's bringing up into all the different spheres of the household life. And, and your family that he's talking about is, is often the people who have seen and known the real you the most. They're the ones that, although you might not always feel this way, they're the ones that know the raw you. <laughs> They're the ones that have seen you angry. They've seen you in your most painful moments, at your lowest moments, at your dirtiest moments, at your highest moments. And they know you before you even started forming an image or an identity. When you were trying to put on that persona that you wanted everyone to know you by, they knew you in those times when you didn't have it all together. And, and there's this reality that we're born into families that we did not choose. Isn't that crazy? We're born into families that we did not choose. And as we become adults and we have kids, we produce children whose characters and ways we cannot fully determine. And you're like, ah, I don't like that. But it's in all these places that we watch the Lord use us to shape one another, especially in the church. And so God designed, God designed family to be the foundation and the context in which our lives are formed and our values and our purposes are patterned. They're places of instruction, they're places of protection, they're places of emotional formation. And often this is very positive, although it's never perfect, but a lot of us also have stories where these are also very neg negative and we experience a lot of painful formation. But what scripture ends up saying across the board is that these relationships, they cannot achieve their full potential their full purpose, unless all of us, parents and children, children and parents, learn to depend on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. None of these realms, husband and wife that we talked about weeks before, of parent and child, of slave and master that we're gonna be talking about in the next two weeks, none of these are too far from Jesus and his transformative power. And that's what we have to start with. And, and see, one of the things that happens in the church is a lot of people, they'll go before marriage and they'll do this thing where they'll get premarital counseling, right? Well, you'll spend time going with a counselor or a pastor and going through some sessions to prepare yourself for such a big part of life. But we rarely, if ever, get pre-child counseling before our first child is born, let alone equip ourselves to raise children 
or to navigate children. All we end up doing is going on Google and going, how do I not throw all their stuff out the window? How do I not throw their telephone against the wall? How do I not, you know, and we're trying to figure out anything we can. And so the church is left with this large opportunity, which is why scripture, I think, talks about this, to to equip people for this. And, And yet, many people and many churches tend to focus on the children's ministry developing the children, the youth ministry developing the youth, and the main service developing the adults. And none of these, and we rarely are, are taking the time to talk about how the development of parents is focused on how parents will influence and impact their family. And that's often the heart of almost all next-gen ministries, is that they wanna equip you as families to help impact and influence your kids. Because the 4% of their life that our next-gen ministries actually get is not gonna do all that. All of us have a role in this. And so our text is in Ephesians chapter six, verses one to four, if you wanna turn there, it's page 979 in the Bibles our church has. Um, Most of you are probably just looking it up, and uh, so I don't know what page it is on your phone. But Ephesians six, one to four, Pastor Lance covered this the last week, and we're gonna kinda revisit it again and talk about a couple other nuances of it, and then I'll get into some of that nerdy research. All right, Ephesians six, one to four says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so this text starts us in, and some of the things that Pastor Lance talked about last weekend, is he talked about this aspect of how parents, or sorry, how children can be obeying and honoring their parents. And we talked through a little bit of that, and a couple of things I just wanted to highlight that are worth noting is one, when Paul brings it up and he talks about the fact that it will go well with you, children, if you honor your parents, is he's actually selecting out of two different versions of the 10 commandments where it talks about that. You have Exodus 20, verse 12, and you have Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. And only Deuteronomy 5, verse 16 says that it will go well with you. And that's the sermon that Moses is giving, trying to urge all of the new generation, this is going to bless all of you. Kids, if you can figure this out. But there's a big difference because Paul takes the time where he says not just honor your parents, he says obey your parents. And you might go, well, what's the difference? Well, honor concerns an attitude towards a relationship. But obey concerns an action towards a relationship. And so it's almost as if Paul knew, a lot of you start with the attitude of honor, but you don't know how to actually take action on it. And I'm prompting you, don't just have the attitude, take action. And Paul's theme on this whole entire section is that we, will all, that we are all equal in the aspect of honoring and obeying one another. That all of us are near and dear to God. And so he's saying, parents... God cares about you, sorry, parents, God cares about your children more than you do. He thinks about them and he's devoted to them even more than you are. And kids, God cares about your parents as much as you do. And even in those times when you're frustrated kids and you don't, your parents still care for you and God still cares for them. And so Paul is trying to kind of shape all this. And these texts are extremely important because they express to kids especially, 
that you have a role in the social order. You have a role in shalom. You have a role in us being complete. And how you get engaged with your parents affects how all that works. And that means kids and teens, you are changing the world. You are part of being world influencers. And God cares about you. And he cares about what you're doing. But I want to focus in quickly on that passage where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Because I want to give you a little bit of context about that that's very significant, especially for a lot of us that are fathers. And Lance talked about this a little bit last weekend. But when he talks about fathers not making your children angry, it's actually something that goes right into the ancient Near Eastern and Greco-Roman culture. Because although there was care and love by fathers and how they would treat their families, it was culturally more normal for them to have absolute control over their children into adulthood. That as a parent, you were still raising and directing and making decisions for your kids when they're in their 40s. What? <laughs> a lot of us are like, I'm out. Right? And back then, parents could lay down punishment in very heavy ways. Fathers had more power over their sons than masters had over their slaves. And, and so it's funny because every time I hear that, I always think of all these people that go, let's go back to the early church and how it was in the early church. And I'm like, you're not going to really like that because fathers could um, sell their sons into slavery at least three times. That was the rule. You could scourge them and you could even have them killed. Is that what you want to go back to when we talk about going to the early church? So the reason why Paul has to give this challenge is because how Christian men, how Christian fathers practiced that control was important to the Lord because sons would learn from their father's examples and they would take it into their families. So what is this making angry that's being talked about? Now, there's a great book that Heather that was just doing our, our weekend host um, loaned to me that's called How We Make Our Kids Angry by Roger Cross. He's got so many brilliant points worth looking into, but he talks a little bit about all this because he talks about that this making angry actually comes from an irritation that's caused from parents nagging or demeaning in everyday life their kids. And this would lead their kids in anger to feel like they never could please their parents. And that's a very real feeling that a lot of us may have with our own parents or kids, you know how that feels at this moment, or we've seen that or heard our kids express that. It's, it's when kids feel pressured to live up to an expectation of who we want them to be and not just what they want to be. It's this thing that sometimes we have good intentions that we're trying to guide them, but we actually start sucking the identity out of them and they're not able to develop. Another element has to do with when we as parents start micromanaging behavior. And, and sometimes, you know, we have to lead in, in how they behave, but we start blurring the lines between what's right and wrong and what's personal preference. Because sometimes the behavioral things we try to steer in our kids is because we want to be able to do something. And so we make that decision more for ourselves than for our kids. Another piece has to do that we bring up our kids, sadly, in a culture that's very based on a performance environment. And that ends up seeping into how we parent. So what ends up happening there is love and attention is connected with a child behaving according to the way you're asking them to behave. So you're not going to spend time with them. You're not going to show them love and affection unless they're doing all the things that you're asking. Now, I've seen myself fail in this. I don't pretend to have any of this nailed. That for me to think about this idea of how do I love 
and focus on my kids even when they don't clean up all those Legos off the floor or even though they won't get off the device after I've told them 17 times. And, and, and to realize that my love, my affection, my attention should never be connected with how well or, or, or wrong they behave. And, and these are the things that sometimes um, bring in anger. Another piece is when, we, uh, is when we realize that we don't have to give in to their desires. It's not that um, we don't deny them sometimes things that are going to harm them, but it means we don't cross their will for no good purpose. That, that, we don't um, that we don't deny their desires without making it some part of the greater vision of God's purpose in the world. Because that's often the, the disconnect that happens. We need to have a moral reason behind our instructions that we give our kids. And if we can explain that, they can internalize that value and they can make a similar wise choice in the future. But an instruction without a moral reason behind it is only an instruction for the moment. And I like what one writer says, and it, and it really challenges me. He says, parents who don't see discipline as part of some great vision of what their children might become for God will wind up using discipline to increase their own private comforts. And children will see that, and they'll eventually become angry. So what do we do? Well, one, we have to take time, and Lance talked about this a little bit, to slow down and show them how to do things and how to process things that apprenticing model that Pastor Lance was talking about. Even when we parent with all compassion and fairness and patience that we can muster, we will still do things that prompt our kids to snarl or retreat away into their room and slam their door or kind of give you the silent treatment. But there are times that we will see that when we walk them through it, they're willing to learn and they're willing to grow with us. And they actually enjoy part of that process. There's a great couple here at our church, Keith and Susan Ritchie, that lead our marriage and family ministry. And I asked them to give me a whole lot of different points on what they've seen and kind of all the key issues of parenting. And one of the things they shared with me is this. They said, we need to learn how to avoid legalism with our kids. We need to avoid um, legalism and understand our situational context to realize that rules are important, but they serve a larger purpose in heart training. And without context, without flexibility, rules can become this guilt-laden burden. And as parents, it's important to exhibit fairness and flexibility, and it's important to do that as much as it is to be right, right? Because that's always what we want to do as parents, be right. I was talking to another friend, and he talked about how when our kids are angry, we need to learn how to get down at their level and really hear them and have them express why they're angry, and have them really share what's going on that is making them respond the way they are. But often, our, our emotions rise with their emotions, right? But we have to discover and address what is the underlying pain, the underlying frustration, the underlying fear, because anger is always the effect of a cause. And it's not just what you said or did as a parent, there's something else. But let's, but let's keep moving in the text, because I haven't even gotten to my nerd out point yet. Paul mentions this same passage in another letter that he writes in Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, he adds a piece to this. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Where he's really saying, hey, this doesn't just make them frustrated and cause tension. This actually steals their motivation. 
It throws off their own identity with themselves. And so another thing that we have to always learn is how to tell our kids that we love them and to say that for them over and over again whenever we can and be their biggest encourager and their biggest cheerleader in all the endeavors that they pursue. Most kids desire their parents' affirmation more than just about anything. And even earlier in this letter, Paul had written in chapter, in chapter four, he said, in your anger, do not sin. And he was talking about that in unity in the church, but this involves family. Family is part of the church. And so he's also talking about not being angry in the wrong way and learning how to vent your anger in the right ways with your family. And, and, and so all these things become important pieces, but then Paul tells us kind of what we need to do. Those are more of the negative, right? Not provoking. But then he goes into the positive. He says, bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, and just really quickly, that's talking about something that was very familiar to everyone that read this letter initially because it was this aspect of a maturity process. This is how we mature. It's to receive guidance, but to receive guidance in a way that doesn't make them resist correction, and most importantly, doesn't resist God's way. And that becomes really important. And, and so part of this, he's talking about this discipline, but it's not discipline how we tend to think of it. And this is one of the things I hate, is that we tend to go to discipline as a behavioral correction. That's not the discipline he's talking about. He's talking about education that's in connection with the discipline of the Lord. Not about disciplining them for how they behave, but for them understanding how God works. He wants you to raise up your kids so that they understand how God works. And that's where this can get misused so often. And so when you hear that, you have to think about the book of Proverbs. The purpose of the book of Proverbs is to help young people understand and be warned about the effects of things in their lives. And what's funny is it is going to talk about discipline and behavior, right? It's going to talk about that in the book, but most of the book is about trying to teach people language that they can follow, pathways that they can follow, ways to keep after God's plan. And it's training that's not human-centered, it's not training and discipline that's based on success in an economic world or, or it's law-centered. It's training in how to be Jesus-centered. And so when we raise up our kids in discipline, it's raising them up to be Jesus-centered. But this is where he uses the next line, this word, nethusia, where it's not just discipline but instruction. And that instruction is the active process of teaching where you're giving verbal guidance as needed. I liked what the Richies said on this point because they said, as parents, we need to learn how to be less about what you're against and more about what you're for. One of the best ways that you can encourage and not anger your kids is to exchange some of our no's and our don'ts with words that describe what we want them to shoot for. That's beautiful. We wanna help them discover their gifts and talents. We wanna help them note their uniqueness and we wanna use the gentlest sort of instruction that's free from rebuke and it's characterized by timely suggestions. Now, what this is all trying to say is that parents should care most for the loyalty of their children to Jesus, more than their intellectual vigor, more than their social position, more than their exemption from great sorrows and failures. Paul wants to see the young people know Jesus and we as parents wanna see young people know Jesus. But what I wanna nerd out with you on for nine minutes, 
is how this changes with adolescence. Because when somebody becomes a teenager, things shift quite drastically. And anyone that has a teenager knows what I'm talking about. There's this transition between childhood and adulthood. And a lot of people will describe it as changing lanes on, changing lanes on a freeway. And when you change lanes on a freeway, you have to be extra alert, right? But let me give you a little bit of background because I want you to help, I want you to see that what we've done with adolescence has actually caused some of the challenges. Because adolescence used to be a term used in the Middle Ages for somebody that was a prepubescent boy or girl who decided to move away from the family to work independently or get married, if it was a female. It came from that background. It came actually from a Greco-Roman background, which they had this Latin term pubertus, comes where we get the word puberty, and pubertus was the Roman term for when majority rights were received for a person. So what that meant is that's when you could actually start receiving property, making contracts, getting married. When you hit puberty. Are you scared yet? <laughs> Adolescence shifted after those periods. It, it, it shifted right in the, in the period of modern industrialization. So from 1880 to 1920, this term adolescence switched because before then, youth and adults would work side by side. And originally that was with good intent because as we moved into industrialization, it was kids, right, working in industry and working in places that were unsafe. And they were like, let's not torture the kids by have them work in harsh conditions anymore when they're young. Let's put them back into school. And actually, the churches were the ones that first started doing this with Sunday school. That education was going to be the focus, and education one for all was the practical necessity. And so in response to all this new situation, the children who stayed in school, school beyond puberty were called adolescents. If you stayed in school past 11 or 12 and didn't go into a trade, why does that matter? Because now... 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 18-year-olds were refashioned as just older children. And suddenly, that's when everyone started writing and talking about the trouble and the challenges that started to rise with teens and youth. And, 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 and this was one of those things that adolescents started becoming viewed at large in the society as maturing children requiring special handling at home and at school and in church. And this was just going to be too hard. And, and when you think about this, prior to a child becoming a teen, your children need and they rarely question and they ordinarily appreciate the physical protection and the provision and the guidance and the emotional warmth that your parental care and leadership gives. Now that varies from family to family. But when they enter this youth phase, now there's needs present which all these old strengths are not adequate enough to engage. So all the ways you love on your kids from one to, well, zero, but zero to 11, or whenever puberty starts for them, because it does start early for some, we suddenly go, I'm trying all the same things, and it's not working anymore. <laughs> and we start freaking out. And so what happens is parents start doing more vehemently the same things they've always done to improve the situation, and sometimes that means I'm going to love on you harder like you're a kid. I'm going to treat you with more rules because obviously you can't be controlled. And it all increases. And so what we need is a new way of sharing strength and new ways of communication when they hit that age. But we don't know how, right? Because you've never done this before. If it's your first teenager, you're like, ah. So how do we define maturity? 
How do we look at who teens are and who adults think that they should be? And how do we see what's happening in that tension? You have to ask yourself the questions. When does someone become an adult and is ready? How long does a parent have to rear a child after they've been weaned? <laughs> Till they're 35? And this is where the very common answer in our culture, and parents will say this to their kids, wait until you're 18. Because we've picked that as a number that we're saying that is when you're actually an adult. Despite the fact that biologically and sexually they're ready, sometimes they're mentally ready, sometimes they're emotionally ready, and sometimes they're socially ready, but we pick a number and we've geared it in our culture around responsibility and economic capability. So although puberty begins adolescence, in our culture it ends with economic independence. And there's something wrong there because every kid is different. I know some of you are getting nervous. You're like, are you gonna tell me that my 13-year-old is ready to get married? Probably not. <laughs> but in our culture, this is how almost all of us that are watching or listening, this is how most of, most of us have experienced it. Now there's a great book that I encourage you if you're a parent <laughs> to read at some point. It's called Teen 2.0 by a guy named Dr. Robert Epstein. And he kept asking this question in the late 90s about why are students less and less mature in our culture? He was kind of looking at it and going, maybe, maybe we've done something to make them that way. And he started looking at this reality that the main need of a teenager has to, become with, has to do with them becoming productive and independent. And after puberty, if we pretend that our teens are still children, we will still be unable to meet their most fundamental needs and we start playing into the great distress that happens. Now there's so much more I could say, but his book does it really well because he takes what's happened in Western culture and he looks in pre-industrialized nations across the world and he's looking at it and going, why do we have higher suicide, higher depression, higher substance abuse, higher arrests, higher prescription drug use, higher sexual activity and STDs over all these other nations? And obviously there's a lot of sociological factors, but the nations that had less of that were nations where children that became adolescents were then right there with adults, learning how to be adults. And so he explores all this. And, and what he says is he says, youth aren't primarily battling parental restrictions and boundaries, instead they've been abandoned by their role models. They no longer have these critical markers for what it means to be growing and developing into holistic adults. And, and so youth, they're going around and, and they're seeking um, sources to bring meaning to their lives. And because we, start, we keep treating them as children, they end up going and seeking out those sources from other places in pop culture. And it's exceptionally challenged to posit a biblical or a Christian source into that as an equal or full authority. Now, remember when I was talking about Paul saying that we need to discipline and, in, and give instruction to our children in order to bless and to mature them? And Lance mentioned last week that this needs to happen along the way with this apprentice concept. So our challenge then comes is that we live in a setup where our system has set in motion, and that's happened over a century ago, a system that isolates teens from adults. 
and we treat all young people as if they're equally and inherently irresponsible and incompetent. Now, as somebody that was a youth pastor for 15, 16 years, I watched this all the time. I watched youth volunteers do it. I watched myself do it. I watched parents do it. And, and parenting, and even the ways government sh- treated teens, it shifted on the discipline and the instruction side of things in order to curb or control teen behavior. Let's just increase the rules and increase the restrictions, and that way we can control this. But as this isolation happened of teens from adults and more restrictions were set in, that just increased the distress that was happening. And and so teens now are almost completely isolated from adults. They're trapped in this vacuumous, media-controlled world of teen culture. And they're learning almost everything they're supposed to learn about in life from who? Other people their age. (laughs) Or other people that want to act their age. (laughs) Because that happens too. There's people that should act like they're 25 and they act like they're 13. But we also know that there's people that are 60 that act like they're 13. Maybe not physically, but in other ways. And and so this is what Dr. Epstein says. He says, American teens are almost completely isolated from adults. They They typically spend more than 35 hours per week surrounded by their peers in school and an additional 35 hours per week with peers outside of school. This is before smartphones even came on the scene. That's two thirds of their waking hours. And that's, according to research, 12 more hours per week than teens in nations like Italy or South Korea. And it's probably 60 hours a week more than teens spent together in other pre-industrial societies. Because what he was trying to say is kids that grew up around adults, that they became 12, 13, and were functioning with the adults, they spent more time with adults once they hit 12 or 13. And he was saying this is part of the loss that's happening. If you want to hear a really sobering statistic, it's to realize that teens, when you look at this, appeared to be subjected to about two times as many restrictions as prisoners and 10 times as many restrictions as everyday adults. And I think he even says five times as many um, restrictions as those in the military. That we put more rules on an 18-year-old than we do in people in prison sometimes. That's what Epstein, and if you want to check out a great little website he has, he has a website called howinfantilizedareyou.com and another one called howadultareyou.com. And it's a little survey that you can fill out or you can have your kids fill out and you get a chance to see see all this. So so why does this matter? Because I need to finish the nerding. We, along with this culture of adolescence, that's been amplified by entertainment, it's been marketed, it's been supported by judicial boundaries. We've placed teens into an environment that has this greater opportunity and this greater wonder, but because we've left them isolated, they've been more stressed, more anxious, more isolated, and they feel foreign and empty. So this is what takes us into our fill in the blank that you were wondering if I would get to. Paul saw this, specialists see this, God knows this. Young people need healthy, and you fill in the blank, adult presence in their lives. We need more adults ministering to teens. Parents, you need that support. Part of the struggle we have is that as parents, we're also sometimes fearful to include other adults into helping raise 
and influence and shape our children. But that's where you wanna get behind those teachers or those coaches or those youth leaders or those youth pastors that are pouring in and taking time for your kids. And if your kids don't have it, you wanna come to the men and women in this church and go, please be a part of my kid's life. Be a part of my teen's life. Youth require the stability and the wisdom of older generations. We wanna treat our teens as what they really are. Young adults with everything but experience, which you as adults must now exert yourself to provide. And that is something that you have to start doing. I'm just in the midst of this, trying to learn how to do this with my oldest that's 13. I know he won't want me to tell any stories, so I won't. (laughs) But we have to consider that stage as the final stage of apprenticeship in growing up. The first stage of real adulthood. Don't treat your teens as older children. Remember that young people tend to come up to our expectations or come down to them. And so one of the reasons that I think you have this prolonged immaturity And sometimes we'll say it's a prolonged adolescence where you'll talk about them saying, well, brain development hasn't really, you know, it doesn't finish for like guys till 23, 24. They'll do a lot of study on that. Well, part of that is because of how we've set it up in the culture. Because that's not worldwide. It's only in certain cultural aspects. And so we have to think about these pieces. So what do we do though? Let me finish back to practical. I think there's some questions we have to start with, and then I wanna give you a few quick points. First question is, where are points where we don't expect teens to take responsibilities for their living? What are some of the areas that you're going, no, I'm still, I still need to be a part of this? But what areas can they take responsibility over? Number two, where are points that we are taking away our students' ability to even own their own faith? Because remember, Paul talked about raising them up in the discipline discipline and instruction of the Lord. Are you making your kids believe what they believe or have you given them some freedom to make that their own? That was something as a youth pastor that we watched over and over and over again. Are we telling kids how to do their faith or are we letting them experience faith? Question three, what are ways that we're holding our teens back from healthy adult behavior? What are some ways that we can encourage that? I like what Dr. Epstein says. He says, teens need to be judged. They need to be loved. They need to be parented first as individuals, not as a group. Don't say, well, you're a teenager and all teenagers are like. Every child, every teen is different. I think we know that, but we don't always practice that. We have to do nuance of our training and our discipline for each child, each teen. But he says a second thing. He says, we need to love and parent them based on their competencies, not on their age. Because a lot of us, we know that we've seen kids that were like, you are 11 and you know how to do this. And I love it. And then we see other ones that they're 18 and you're like, you'll never do this. No, I'm just kidding, right? And, and so you're having to always work with what are their competencies and how can you help them shape that? But he makes another one. He says, we have to learn how to love and parent them based on their potential for learning and growth and not merely on their current characteristics. See where they're going to be and help them get there. 
And then the last one is he says, love and parent them without putting labels such as you're just another adolescent, you're just another teen, you're just another kid, which those terms all imply limits or flaws. Talk to them like they're an adult. This is one of the things I loved as a youth pastor is watching teens enjoy sitting down with other adult leaders and talking about heavy stuff. And I would always have parents go, oh, they're really not gonna want. Man, I've done Revelation Bible studies with middle schoolers. That doesn't happen normally. But when you would sit down with them, you saw that they were interested and obviously an eighth grader was suddenly more interested than a sixth grader. <laughs> or a sophomore boy is suddenly wanting to talk about some of the, I've seen students that rise into this. And so this takes us to our last piece, which is the lines between provoking and blessing. Because the lines between provoking and blessing are super confusing. <laughs> it takes time and it takes work and a lot of us feel ill-equipped. But blessing is something very important. Blessing is actually when a speaker feels himself intimately connected and, and wants to show goodwill to someone. That's the biblical definition of baruch or eulogian. It's a promise to those addressed that you are showing them favor, that you are showing them grace, not because of anything they've done, but because of your connection with them. We need to learn to bless like that, to not try to bless our kids in this exchange, like a business. You did a really good job, so I give you this. No, you just bless them because of who they are. You bless them because you love them and you have an intimate relationship with them. And we do that because God has done that for us. He blesses us even though we do not deserve it. He blesses us even though sometimes we have been the worst Christian of the week. But let me finish with this. All that you and all that we can do to get ready in your teens is just make sure everything is ready to go. But the only thing that can propel the ship forward is wind. I don't know if you've ever heard that illustration before. The spirit is the one that actually affects change in them. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the name in the Hebrew and in the Greek for the spirit is the same term for wind or breath. He is the one that moves the ship. You can help them build the ship. You can help them get the sails set. You can tell them the map and the constellations and show them where to go. But then you have to allow the wind to blow. And that's where we have to be praying for the spirit to be the moving power in our kids' lives. He's the one that turns on the light when they're in the dark. He is the one that is the inward conviction of their challenges and of their actions. He is the one that's gonna inspire their behavior and inspire their obedience to obey and honor parents. The spirit is the one working 24 seven on your kids. Whereas we, as parents, we still have to work on ourselves and our spouse and our other kids and our employees, <laughs> but the spirit is focused 24 seven on your kids. And so I think myself, I think all the youth leaders in this church, I think all the parents, we all struggle 
because sometimes we try to set up so many things and we so desperately want to see movement in their lives. And really, all we have to do is not abandon that precious work, but never fail to call upon the Spirit to put life and wind in their sails. And so let me pray for you, for your kids. And I encourage you tonight, after all the candy or all the sitting inside to avoid the candy, to pray for your kids that the Spirit would do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the mysteries and the joys of creation. We thank you that you created us in your image and likeness and that you raise us through this process of maturity from an embryo into a life, into young little babies that need all the attention, to walking toddlers, to laughing children, to scraped up knees, to trying to learn on Zoom, to becoming adults. And God, we need your wisdom and we need your presence and your power in our kids' lives. God, shape a generation of children, shape a generation of young adults that have been so impacted by your spirit because all of us as parents, all of us as a church got down on our knees and we said, spirit, work. Show us how to not get angry with them. Show us how to discipline. Show us how to give them instruction and to seek out your face. Lord, raise these kids. We need you more than anything else. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.